of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. It is good to be here and uh, so glad that you've chosen to spend this time with me. Um, Just a little bit, uh, just want to let you know that uh, I have been recovering from sickness. I have had uh, allergies which have attacked my body in the last week and so if my voice sounds a little different today, uh, that is probably why. So, Um, But we're continuing this five-part series on the five uh, neglected essentials of corporate worship, at least five that I have chosen and I think are vital. We've looked at the Lord's table, we have looked at the kiss of peace, and today we are going to be looking at lingo and talking about vernacular jargon's contribution to the ethos of worship And uh, this is something that I think is neglected quite often in the church, and it's usually done in the name of a semantics argument. In other words, um, lingo does not matter, or this term, or that term, this word, that word does not matter because it's just a semantics game. And I've said quite often in other episodes that it does matter. Every word that is used in corporate worship matters. In the Western church, in Western society, and particularly in America, um, the ethos of the church seemingly involves a catering to the culture for a plurality of underlying reasons. The strong belief in the use of vernacular language really stems from the Reformation era. Uh, But I will argue that it has drastically changed in its purpose. Uh, What I mean by that is where reformers desired for communities of God's people to possess the ability to worship in their own language, in their heart language, uh, that was one of the arguments Martin Luther made. People should be able to worship in the vernacular language, which for him was German. Um, There desire was that people would worship in their own language and thus experience a greater effect in life change. Um, Now, I I don't mean that um, your life cannot be changed uh, through another language. For example, if you speak another language, if you speak Spanish or French or or me me personally, um, I have performed so much liturgical Latin music that uh, there's a level of understanding in liturgical Latin that um, so at times I have had genuine worship experiences singing music in Latin, but that is not the norm. And so um, reformers desired for people to be able to worship in their heart language and, their, and see a greater effect in life change. But I think the tendency in modern churches, at least with the use of vernacular language, it's founded upon the desires of people. In other words, lost or saved, the reason we use not just vernacular language but colloquial lingo is to cater to the desires of people. So the purpose is not the worship of God normally, but the desires of people so that we appear cool or we appear... Uh, to 
be relative to modern society. And those are drastically different reasons. And so uh, uh, lingo is important, vernacular language. I am not saying don't use vernacular language, and I'm not saying don't use colloquial lingo. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. But we need to be careful uh, still in in the language that we use. And so um, a few weeks ago, I had an episode on language in worship music, and we talked about uh, modern versus uh, traditional and, and, and various aspects of language. Well, today I'm specifically discussing lingo and how it has been neglected in the church and why that's a crucial issue. And so I'm going to discuss vernacular jargon and its contribution to the ethos of worship in our modern society. Worship leaders often see themselves as indirect theologians and theological teachers when the view really should foster teaching in a more direct manner. In other words, worship leaders should be intentional and purposeful with the lingo that they choose to use. Uh, Lingo teaches ideas, concepts, and even theologies, whether we realize it or not. And uh, I've heard many people say things like, well, they know what I mean, but my response is usually, do they? (laughs) You you can assume someone knows what you mean, but uh, they might not. And so don't assume it so easily. When worship leaders use terms such as stage or set list, uh, those are two common terms that I hear quite often among worship leaders, the stage or the set list. Uh, Many people's minds automatically create an association with worship with those words. But those words, the problem is, they're also associated with a concert setting. And so jargons such as stage and set lists is naturally associated with worship, but also with a concert. And so you want to be careful. I'm not saying they're inherently wrong. But we need to be intentional, pointed, and clear with the the lingo that we use. And so I prefer other than the partial counsel of God. So while many Christians might be tempted to write off the idioms used in corporate worship, what is said in corporate worship is vital to an accurate message. So if one chooses to approach lingo as if it is not important, the risk of Uh, The risk is taken of of submitting a false gospel or a partial gospel, which really is no gospel at all. And so uh, we could teach that God helps those who help themselves. Uh, That sounds good. Sounds like, yeah, that might be in the Bible. Um, But if we don't realize it, that that's not in the Bible, um, we are teaching a false gospel. But even upon discovering its absence from the Bible, you could argue, well, you know what I mean, or it's not a big deal. Or someone could argue that that concept could be true depending on the perspective. You know, um, God helps those who help themselves. It sounds good. It could be true. But to teach the concept is truth is to not only neglect the full counsel of God, but to also teach a false gospel. Again, it's not just a semantics issue. You're teaching, you're held to a high standard when you're teaching the Word of God. And so we need to teach the full counsel of God. Um, Here's another example. I have had people before say, 
emphatically that it is a sin to drink alcohol. Now, if you have a personal conviction and choose not to drink alcohol, uh, then don't do it. That's between you and the Lord. If God has told you don't drink alcohol, don't do it, because for you it would be a sin. But you are teaching a false gospel if you are telling people that it is a sin to drink alcohol, because that is nowhere in the Bible. Now, obviously getting drunk is a sin, but to teach something that is not in the Bible as if it were is to teach a false gospel. And so, lingo matters. The words that we use in worship matter. And so often they are neglected in corporate worship. And so, it may seem like a drastic statement here to say that teaching something not in the Bible as truth is to teach a false gospel. That might seem like a drastic statement, but it is the necessary approach of someone who takes the gospel message seriously. Believers can and should use understandable understandable lingo and jargon, but jargon's contribution to the ethos of corporate worship exists naturally. And uh, so our theological beliefs and ideas are often embedded through the lingo of corporate worship. That is to say that they are just naturally there. Usually there's not a deliberation. A starting point for Christians would be to move beyond embedded theology into deliberative theology. In other words, why do I believe what I believe? Why do I use this word instead of that word? When I pray in public, why do I say this? Why do I end my prayer with in Jesus' name? Whatever the case is, deliberate those issues. So the proper mindset should should also be that with worship leaders' purposeful efforts to proclaim the full counsel of God in corporate worship— which could likely require change in some of the lingo used, we need to be intentional about our efforts. Lingo is often neglected in corporate worship, and but to declare the full counsel of God, even vernacular communication, even lingo, even jargon has to be accurate. Another thought I have on this matter is that lingo matters because worship is about God, not humanity. So the purpose of Christ's incarnation is frequently understood in the context of of a vertical relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. The proper relational understanding, however, should be first and foremost as a triune love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and secondarily as a love relationship between Christ and the church. Okay? We often think of the primary relationship as Christ and the church, but the primary relationship is the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. So out of love for the Son, the Father has given a people, the church. Out of love for the Father, the Son is incarnate word and has given his life for the people whom um, have been given, and yet he loves primarily the Father, and he gives his life out of love for the Father, or has given his life out of love for the Father. 
And out of love for both the Father and the Son, the Spirit calls, convicts, and guides the people of God. So the vertical relationship between God and his people then is subsequent to and derived from the horizontal and triune love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so in this way, lingo matters because worship is about God, not about humanity. So often we think that we are the focus of the gospel, and we are not. God is the gospel and the focus and the point of the gospel. So why would we try to present a message to people, a story, the gospel message, with incorrect lingo when it's not even about us. It is about God. Uh, I would dare say that most of us would probably, if if we're given the choice, you must do something for God. I mean, these these this lingo may seem personal and sincere, but it's far from it. Even if they are sincere, they're unintentionally perhaps discourteous at ba- at best. God is unquestionably a personal God to his people as both individuals and as a covenanted body, but he is also indisputably sovereign, holy, and larger than a friend we can carry in our pockets like a small pet. And so irreverent and thoughtless lingo should not be accepted by Christians, especially those in worship leadership. I I bring up the prayer thing, the Father, thank you for dying for our sins, because I have heard that prayed even recently. Someone in a corporate prayer said, Father, thank you for dying for our sins. Now, on the surface, it might make sense. People maybe don't think about it, and it just goes through one ear and out the other, and, oh yeah, thank you, Father, for dying for our sins. To many believers, it seems like a good thing to give thanks to the Father for dying for the sins of the church, except for one neglected but vitally important fact, the Father did not die for anyone's sins. That was the role of the Son. And so a common response in this situation might be, uh, if someone were to criticize that lingo, uh A response might be, well, they're both God, the Father and the Son, or again, it might be, well, you know what I meant, or you know what they meant. But again, do I, or do they, are you sure they know what you mean? You are teaching a theology by praying that. Everyone who hears that is either directly or indirectly receiving some form of theological teaching. And so a greater question will be this. Does the one praying this phrase understand what they are saying or even understand Trinitarian theology at all? This is thoughtless lingo. And so years upon years of apathy in the church in corporate worship have led us to where we are a place of theological neglect in the lingo that we use. And so we're here now. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to fix it. <laughs> lingo is is vital. And we need to start changing the lingo that we use by not being apathetic, but being intentional. The solution is intentionality. So I'm not just offering criticisms here, but I'm offering solutions. The solution for neglected lingo is intentionality. 
there's nothing inherently wrong with using the term stage instead of platform or to speak of the music during corporate worship as a set list. It's not sinful. I'm not going to say that. But I would suggest, however, that the, the terms are reckless and exude an unintended associations among believers then further contribute to the false equation of music and worship. Okay? Um, when you use the term set list... Or, here's another common one. Uh, recently, I heard someone say, um, the worship was so good today and the sermon was great too. That That's a wrong way to look at, at it. Um, the sermon is worship too. Everything that happens in a worship service, communion, the sermon, the prayers, it is all worship. So we need to stop saying the worship was good or... Um, or even in our planning set lists, uh, in our planning orders, uh, stop using the term set list as the music portion of uh, the order. Uh, that implies a concert setting. Uh, something that I've seen on Planning Center Online, which by the way, if you're not familiar with that, Planning Center Online is a uh, program that many worship leaders use to plan their worship services during the week. Their worship teams are able to see and log in to Planning Center Online and see uh, what the order is and kind of um, know what's coming up the next Sunday, that sort of thing. Um, But even Planning Center Online um, uses the term, the word worship for music. And and we need to stop doing these things. They 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 have unintended unintended uh, implications, and we need to be intentional. And so we need to strive to cut ties that teach the church that music is equal to worship. And so um, we just need to be intentional about these things. Intentionality is the key and the solution to apathy. So. These are some examples of many, but the point that I suggest is that intentionality is fundamental. Each and every word used uh, in the lingo of corporate worship possesses meaning and it furnishes either an intended or an unintended implication. So intentionality looks disparate between various worshiping contexts, but it's vital to each. In your context... The lingo that you can use might be different than the lingo that I can use, but um, we need to be intentional no matter the context. A progressive free church holds the same responsibility of intentionality as a strict liturgical church. Leaders of worship should examine every word spoken, and if that means over-planning, then over-plan. If that means scripting, then script. (laughs) There are people that will say, well, that's insincere if you script a prayer, if you script a service. No, it's not. How is that any more insincere than someone who, quote, extemporaneously, end quote, prays the same prayer every week and says, Father, thank you for dying for our sins. How is a scripted prayer any less, um, any less irreverent? Uh, than that. It's not. And so if you need to script, then script. If you need to overplan, then overplan. Whatever it takes, we as God's people need to be faithful to his call, his glory, and the gospel message. 
God's story is at stake here. God's worship is at stake. And so we need to declare it clearly and accurately in understandable lingo, but intentional lingo. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.